Again, a very good morning to you. Thank you for joining us on this Christmas morning. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day. Let me open for us in prayer before we get to the God's word. I'm going to read a, a, a prayer from the, the Valley of Vision. It is called a minister's prayer. Matter of fact, let's let's stand for the reading of God's word. Then we'll do this. This is the word of the Lord. Give it your full attention. In the beginning, John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, not anything or was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Let us pray. Oh, my Lord. Let not my ministry be approved only by men or merely win the esteem and affections of people, but do the work of grace in their hearts. Call thy elect, seal and edify the regenerate ones and command eternal blessings on their souls. Save me from self-opinion and self-seeking. Water the hearts of those who hear thy word that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power. Cause me and those that hear me to behold thee here in the light of special faith and hereafter in the blaze of endless glory. Make my sermon a means of grace to myself and help me to experience the power of thy dying love. For thy blood is balm, thy presence bliss, thy smile heaven, thy cross the place where truth and mercy meet. Look upon the doubts and discouragements of my ministry and keep me from Self-importance. I beg pardon for my many sins, omissions, infirmities as a man and as a minister. Command thy blessings on my weak, unworthy labors and on the message of salvation given. Stay with thy people and may thy presence be their portion and mine as well. When I preach to others, let not my words be merely elegant and masterly. My reasoning polished and refined, my performance powerless and tasteless. But may I exalt thee and humble sinners. O Lord of power and grace, all hearts are in thy hands. All events are at thy disposal. Set the seal of thy mighty, almighty will upon my ministry. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less that you become the more. Let your people not hear me or see me, but hear you, see you, and glorify you. For the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Once again, good morning. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day. Thank you for also joining us on this special day in which we are graced by by God, not only to celebrate the, the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ with this holiday of Christmas. Many of you, <clears throat> by your very presence this morning, 
whether you realize it or not, are being a witness to your unbelieving family members who don't understand why you would today of all days forego all of the the traditions that you've held for maybe the past six or seven years of early morning cooking, coffee, opening presents. Why would you forego all of that to go to church? We want you to know that we are, are praying for you. As you gather with your family after church and and later on, and as you encounter all of those different questions, let them be an opportunity for you to share the gospel with them, to share the reason for the hope that lies within you. We are, as elders and as a church, we are praying for you, that the Lord uses you to be a witness to your unbelieving family members. Amen? Amen. We read some verses in the prologue of the Gospel of John, found in the first chapter. And in the prologue, the first five chapters or the first five verses and even the first 18 verses, the Apostle John takes us behind the veil, as it were. He he echoes the beginnings of the book of Genesis in the beginning. You remember this. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis one one. But while Genesis, the beginning goes History forward. John's beginning goes backward into eternity. And it is the key that unlocks everything that follows in John's gospel. I would like us to specifically focus on verse 14 of chapter one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. As I've said, these opening verses in the gospel of John provide us with with the key to all that follows in the rest of John's gospel. As you read the gospel of John, you may be tempted and maybe every single chapter to ask the question and you would be correct in doing so. Who is this one? Who is this one who calls men to follow him and who turns water into wine? Who is this one that commands that we must be born again? And this not of man's own strength or man's own initiative, but it is of the spirit as the spirit wills or as the spirit blows. Who is this one who heals the sick and gives sight to the blind? Who is this one who feeds the multitudes and raises the dead? Who is this one who who says before Abraham was, I am, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the resurrection and the life, or I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father except through me. Who is this one who will go on to say in John chapter 17, verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Who is this one that died and that rose again and who ascended into heaven? Who is this one? Well, John is telling us in these opening verses of his prologue who this one is. He is God, the eternal word. He is God's own self-expression for for that is what our words are. If we are speaking truly, if we speak truly, our words reveal who we are. 
Our words exegete. Our words explain who and what we are if we speak truly. And John is telling us that this one who ultimately would die and rise again and ascend to the glory of heaven is the one who is described here as the word, the eternal word. He was in the beginning with God. He is the perfect self-expression of everything that God is. And John goes on to tell us in the perfect self-expression Jesus Christ has united himself to human nature. He's united himself to human flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. As that song was was going on, I, I for the first time, began to imagine the wise men coming to the, the manger of the Lord Jesus Christ and falling down on their knees as these wise men from the Orient began to recognize and realize God is among us. Brothers and sisters, ponder the thought. The everlasting God walked the dust of his own creation. There is nothing more fantastic in all of human writing, in all of human literature, than what John describes for us here in this gospel. And the word became flesh. What we'd like to do this morning is to ponder the wonder of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I may be only speaking of myself when I say, at such times as this in the year, I find myself deeply saddened and even ashamed by my own familiarity with the birth narratives that are described to us in the Gospels. My own familiarity, my own coldness, my own callousness. Not that my my familiarity has bred contempt, but it's just bred a callousness. I know the story. Coming into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's almost become commonplace for me. And I'm speaking of myself. I'm amazed at how little my heart races. How little my pulse quickens as I read the staggering unimaginable immensity of what God has has done in coming in his son in the midst of our broken, desolate, sinful and rebellious world. So what I'd like to do with you this morning is what I did in my studies. And again, I'm speaking of my own heart, maybe even before I'm speaking of yours As we began to study, just begin to ponder and to consider with John the glorious coming into the world of the Son of God, the eternal word, God's own self-expression. And I'd like to share with you just four points this morning as we celebrate the Lord's day and the incarnation of his son. With first this, number one, here in verse 14. We encounter or we stand on holy ground. Number one, here we encounter or here we stand on holy ground. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, how do we begin to begin to speak about the unspeakable and the indescribable? John Calvin was right when he said we speak We speak on so that we may not remain silent. (laughs) And Calvin was acknowledging that we are in verses like these. We are but touching the very outskirts of God's ways, meaning this, meaning here, probably more than anywhere. Brothers and sisters, we are out of our depths here and in many other places in the scriptures. We are beyond ourselves. You can read the verses and you can understand the words, but to to understand and to pause all of its meaning. It is beyond us. God became man. Can you fathom that? Fathom this God in Jesus Christ, hanging, forsaken, abandoned, broken and alone on a Roman cross. Fathom that. I ask you again. How do we begin to begin to describe the indescribable? We must confess. I confess that I cannot. We cannot. I cannot begin to speak adequately. Of the mystery that is laid before us in the incarnation. But we can, with the help of God, speak scripturally. We can speak according to what God has said, meaning we can seek to be faithful to God's self-revelation. But if nothing else, that should remind us that even the boldness of Christian witnesses should always, always have with their witness deep humility. Even the strongest, most bold witness for Christ must always walk with deep humility. Because we, at every step in our Christian lives, we are out of our depths before God. Out of our depths. Therefore, humility, modesty, ought always to go hand in hand with great boldness. Because we are, we are dealing with the revelation of the eternal God. John is making the most staggering of statements, is he not? He is telling us of the one who was in the beginning, the one who was with God, literally prostantheon, face to face with God, an unbroken, visible encounter with God, who was from everlasting to everlasting, that he, the one who neither has beginning of days nor end of life, that he became flesh. Consider the great wonder of that. Lowly lowly humanity joined to glorious deity. In 2 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul speaks of our Lord as God's indescribable gift. And the word became flesh. Here, we who are finite and, and, and more than finite, sinfully finite... We are confronted with the glory of the eruption of the eternal. 
the intrusion of the divine into time and into space. He who was timeless, he who was without borders, leapt into time and leapt into space. John tells us, this one who was in the beginning with God and who was God and who is the creator of all things so much so that not a thing was made without him. He became flesh. I don't know about you, but simply reading these words, considering these words, reminds me of utterly, how utterly out of my depths I really am. And the one whom the heavens cannot contain, the uncontainable God who upholds the universe and who who brings star systems out into existence by the mere word of his mouth. He became flesh. You may remember Paul's words to Timothy, his son of the faith. Great is the mystery of godliness. He appeared in a body. The eternal word took to himself or took for himself a body. (laughs) Great is the mystery that is God's revelation of God's truth. Paul is basically saying to Timothy, here is the essence of revealed godliness. He, the eternal word, took a body. Isn't it interesting that the Bible is extremely cautious On how it goes about explaining the enfleshment or the incarnation of the Son of God, the eternal word. Turn with me to Luke. You may be saying, what did he just say? Let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 1. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what the sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of God, the most high. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father, David, and he will reign over those of over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. This is the report of the Gabriel of of the angel Gabriel to Mary. And if you can imagine the shock of Mary, Mary is out of her depths. It is beyond her. And what is her normal response? The eternal one shall be born in human flesh. The promised seed of Abraham, born of the seed of a woman. What is the response of Mary in verse 34? How will this be? Since I am a virgin, how can this be? The message from God is out of her depths. It is beyond her. How is this possible? And notice with me. Notice the remarkable response of the angel Gabriel. What does he say? Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child will be called holy, the son of God. Do you notice something about his response? Do you notice that there there is a certain reservation in the response of the angel Gabriel? He cannot say how the eternal one will be come flesh. He cannot give the details of how God will accomplish this remarkable work. Why? It's not because he did not have the information. No, it's not because he was not allowed to share the information. It's not that information was was not allowed to go to Mary. No. It is that information that he also cannot understand. He was not withholding information. He did not have the information. Because even the angel Gabriel is out of his depths before God. Even the angel Gabriel must humble himself before the knowledge of the eternal God. He doesn't know. All he can say is the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the son or the child will be called holy, the son of God. Gabriel was too out of his depths. It also was beyond him. How can he explain that God will become a man? What's he going to say? Well, you know, there's going to be this egg. And the Holy Spirit will fertilize the egg. And it will grow to be a zygote in your world. No. He stops his mouth. Why? Because he, along with we, are standing on holy ground. Stop your mouth. What is his response? What is his response? The great emphasis of the incarnation is not biology, it's theology, which results in our doxology. It's not biology. It's theology, which results in our great doxology. What is he saying? Theology. This is about the wonder of our great God, not about biology, not about the fertilization of an egg in the nine months and then he'll grow. It's not science or biology. There is no explanation which results in our doxology, our praise and glory to God. How can the eternal, uncontainable God become flesh? Answer that question. Answer that question when a Muslim asks you. That's their question. How does God become man? You can't answer that question. Stop your mouth. You are standing on holy ground. And how does the angel Gabriel conclude? What does he say? What is what can he say to summarize how he should respond when confronted with the depths of the mystery of godliness? Verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. I don't know. I have no idea, but I know this. With God, there is nothing that is impossible. It is as as if God is saying, be content to wonder. Be content to wonder and let your wonder lead you to adoration. Let your wonder lead you to worship. Be content to stop your mouth. Bow down and worship God. You are standing on holy ground. God is. And God is able to do whatever he sets forth to do. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that we are confronted 
almost every single page with unembarrassed supernaturalism. What do you mean? Have you ever noticed how many supernatural occurrences there are in scriptures that have no logical explanation? God created the world, ex nihilo, out of nothing. How would you like to do that? We can't. We can't. Sandwich. It won't come. You've got to do. You've got to make it. You've got to produce it. Right. He calls forth stars and planets out of nothing. He floods the world and parts seas. He brings forth skies or brings forth food from the skies and water from rocks. He he causes donkeys to talk. And little boys to cut heads off of giants. He takes a living man into heaven with a chariot of fire. And makes lions to sleep peacefully with men. Ray, turn the AC on, please, brother. The History Channel. The National Geographic Channel. May attempt to explain the mysteries of the Bible. But they only believe in science. Not so Libre. <laughs> they only seek to use scientific explanations. And they are missing the wonder of the mystery of God. And man's greatest fault is to try to explain things through natural, natural understanding, natural logic, rather than to bow down and say to you alone, have all knowledge and to you alone, I worship. The Bible has unashamedly confronted us with this, for with God there is nothing impossible. Bow your knee. And let days like this, as I said last week, let days like this be signposts along your way in life that remind you to bow your knee before your God. Secondly, in becoming flesh, the eternal word, the son of God, did not cease to be what he eternally was. Long point, I'll say it again. In becoming flesh. The eternal word, the son of God, did not cease to be what he eternally was. Verse 14 of John chapter one. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Have you ever wondered if this verse meant that the Lord Jesus Christ no longer became God when he left the divine glory of heaven? How can he be here And also be there. My dear friends, God taking to himself what he was not, a human flesh, did not for one moment cause him to cease to be what he eternally was, eternal God. In becoming flesh, he did not lay aside his deity. He did not abandon his Godhead. He remained eternally and existentially what he always was and eternally had been. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2, and you may know this verse. And he made himself nothing. Literally, himself he emptied. You know that verse? Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself. Do you know that verse? Yeah. 
What does Paul mean when he says he emptied himself? Paul does not mean in any way that he ceased to be what he, ter- what he eternally was, but rather, listen to this, he emptied himself, not by subtraction, but by addition. The Lord Jesus Christ emptied himself, not by subtraction, but by addition. That may sound weird at first hearing. He emptied himself doing what? What does the Bible say? He emptied himself taking the very form of a servant. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself? He emptied himself by becoming of no reputation. He emptied himself of becoming of no reputation by taking, taking the form of a servant. Form literally meaning identical sense. He became a servant. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation becoming a servant. He added to what he was. He added to what he was. That's the wonder of the incarnation. God became in Christ what he had never been until that moment. Without ceasing to be what he eternally was. He was in the beginning. And he never ceased to be what he eternally was. Three. Next. What did he become? He became flesh. Verse 14. And the word became flesh. This is going to be very important for you to listen to. Because there is much confusion and much heresy around this and around the previous point as well. It is not merely that Christ assumed a human body. Assumed can sometimes make us think in our minds that it was a type of alias. Meaning this, that it wasn't his real name. He just took that name for a little while. But it wasn't really his name. Or that he assumed for a time to hide what he really was. Though he was never really that the whole time. Does that make sense? The body of the Lord Jesus Christ was not assumed in that sense. It was not it was not an assumption in that sense. His humanity was not a mask or a type of garment that he would take off. Rather, the Apostle John says this. He became flesh. He became what you and I are. He became frail. He became weak. He became vulnerable. Temptable flesh, yet without sin. He became flesh. He would grow as we grow from infant to child. From child to adolescent. From adolescent to man. He became flesh. It was not a temporary assumption. Jesus was not God in a human appearance, in a human appearance as if he only appeared to be human. He was human. The incarnation was not a temporary phenomenon. Listen close. He became flesh forever. You may say, but then he went to heaven and no longer, right? He became flesh. He became what you and I are. And one of the glories of heaven and one of the glories of the gospel is at the right hand of God at this moment is a man who wears our frame. There is glorified dust at the right hand of the father. 
glorified dust humanity at the right hand of the Father. And He knows us. He knows us truly, personally, perfectly, and presently. And not just by divine omniscience. He knows us through personal engagement. This God-man is at the right hand of God. And he knows our frame. Why? How? Because he is our frame. He knows our, our flesh, our nature, because he is our flesh and blood. He became flesh. Eternally God from everlasting to everlasting, yes. Amen. And also God-man who has joined our frail flesh to his. And finally, in becoming flesh, God in Christ became what theologians call a, a reasonable soul. God in Christ became a reasonable soul. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean? What does that mean that he became a reasonable soul? The Lord Jesus was not only a true body, but a reasonable soul. That is to say that he was not only God in a human shell, but that is to say that he was God who entered into, listen, all of the psychological possibilities of becoming one with us in our humanity. What does that mean? What does that mean for our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God? It means this, that he experienced ordinary human affections. That he experienced ordinary Human feelings. He, in his humanity, he needed friendship. That may sound weird. God needs friendship in his humanity. He needed friendship. We're told in Mark chapter 3 that he chose the disciples. Why? To go out in his name? Yes. To heal the sick? Yes. To testify of the kingdom of God? Yes. But why first? Verse 14 so that they might be with him. It is not good for man to be alone. The Lord Jesus Christ entered into all of the psychological possibilities of being one with us. He needed companionship. He became angry at the abuse of the temple. In Mark 10, 21, we are told that Jesus loved or had pity on the rich young ruler. We are told in John eleven thirty five that Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. At the end of Mark 9, Matthew 9, the Lord Jesus sees the crowds coming toward him. And what does he do? He has pity on them. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And he feels for them. The Lord Jesus Christ was moved to pity. He was in his humanity. He was never stoic. He was never stone-faced. There was no stiff upper lip with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a human being. In his humanity, and listen close, in his humanity, he was never impassive. In his humanity, he was never, meaning he was never without feeling or emotion or passions in his humanity. We all have different temperaments, yes. 
But I wonder if too often we blame our temperaments on what is really unchristlikeness. Well, I'm just not that way. It's just not my culture. Rather than confessing, I'm so unlike Christ. And I need for him to make me more like him. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is the prototypical man. He is the perfect example of what man should be. He's the man of faith, the perfect example of true humanity as God intended us to be. He was never dispassionate. He was never pitiless. He was never unmoved. His heart went out to men. He showed compassion. He wept with those who wept and he he rejoiced with those who rejoiced. He knew sorrow. He knew amazement even. Amazed at people's unbelief. He knew grief. He knew anger. He knew fear. The Lord Jesus Christ never knew fear, really. God in his humanity was not unemotional. He had emotions, but their emotions were perfect. They were sanctified emotions. He became human by his own eternal decree. And it was God's choice in eternity past that he might become a man in the likeness of humanity. He was a man of free choice. He was the second Adam. He was the greater Adam. But he was a man of free choice, free to make decisions. He turned stone. He chose not to turn the stone into bread. He chose not to bow down and worship the devil. He is the prototypical man of faith. He is what we should be. He's the exemplar man of faith. Yes, but he was God. He did all of those things easily. Those were never effortless choices of, of, of man or those were never effortless choices of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. Never effortless, never ever effortless. My father and I would have this conversation often. Could he have sinned? Ah, he wouldn't have sinned. He would breeze through life, tip throwing, tiptoeing through tulips. Not so. Not for one moment, not for one moment did Christ make any effortless choice. He was a man like us, yet without sin. You don't believe me? He was a man like us who experienced pain and agony so much so that in the Garden of Eden, the Lord God sent angels to minister to him. Let he crumble under the weight of the prospect of the cross. Nothing was effortless in his choices, in his humanity. The agonization, the the agonizing in the garden. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. And then there appeared an angel strengthening him. What kind of agony must he have been in that he needed an angel to come and strengthen him? You may be saying, where am I in all all of this? You are to bow your face before God in all of this. It is he who came and died for you. In agony, the Bible says he prayed more earnestly so that so much so that sweats of blood came from his forehead. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ agonizes over choices that he had to make. The prospect of taking for us the wrath of God. Being separated from God as he knew 
that he could not be, be united or in fellowship with God with sin. The darkness that would soon loom over his soul. Not for one moment that the Lord Jesus Christ walked through this earth on a bed of ease. And it is this Lord Jesus who knows our frame. And it is this one who knows our weaknesses, who knows our infirmities, because he's felt and experienced our weaknesses. He's felt and he's experienced our infirmities. He sympathizes with us and grieves with us, for us. The Bible says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax or a smoldering wick he will not put out. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt or tabernacled among us. John may be thinking of the tent of meeting. The tabernacle in the desert that would be put down and picked up. And there in the tent of meeting, God in the Shekinah glory would meet with his people. In the cloud of meeting and the cloud of meeting would descend and the priest of God would enter. And they would meet with God as it were. Jesus is our tent of meeting. Jesus is our tabernacle. Jesus is in Christ where we meet God. John said he made his dwelling among us in the midst of us. He tabernacled among us. His environment was our environment. He shared our cursed world. He knew the malice of enemies, the rejection of friends, the loneliness of public humiliation. And ultimately, he knew the pain of a silent heaven and a forsaking God. He came among us. He never stood apart from us. He entered into true humanity. Can you take that in? Can you fathom that? But there is something greater than that, isn't there? There's something greater than Emmanuel. God with us, isn't there? What could that be? Something greater than Emmanuel, God with us. It is Emmanuel, God for us. It is Emmanuel, God for us. God came not only to be among us, but to be for us. He came to bear for us the sin that we inherited in Adam. He came to live for us the life that we could never live in perfect obedience to the perfect law of God. He came to die for us the righteous judgment of the law. And he rose for us, showing that God accepted his atoning sacrifice. And now he bids us to repent of of our sins and to trust in Christ alone as our only way, our only hope of being saved from the wrath of God that will inevitably come to those who reject the gift of grace that God has given in Christ Jesus. He saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And this is the great scandal of the gospel, is it not? 
This is the great scandal of the unbelieving world who says, I can do something good enough to earn my place before God. This is the scandal of the world who says, worship who you will. We all end up worshiping God. Not so. Not so. That, that we would have the audacity to say what we are only saying as Christ has said, that there is only one way to Christ or only one way to God, and it is through Christ and through Christ alone. Your works will be as filthy rags when you stand before God. I beseech you, be clothed in Christ. I recently heard an interview with the infamous Oprah Winfrey. Why are you laughing? Well, what's funny? Interviewing a pastor from Hillsong, New York. Why do I need to say his name? <laughs> and Oprah, you cannot be interviewed by Oprah unless you're going to say this answer. Oprah asked him, so Carl Lentz, do you think that anybody can have a relationship with God? Carl Lentz, Hillsong pastor of New York, some 6,000 showing up on Sundays and throughout the week, who is more like a rock star than a minister of the gospel. His reply, oh, no, God loves everybody. Look it up for yourself. It's at five minutes in Oprah Winfrey's interview. Look it up on YouTube. Oh, no, God loves everybody. It's not be a message of love if, if God didn't love everybody. And, and eventually, whether you accept him or reject him, he says, there's a place for everyone. Don't be shocked. Oprah's not going to interview anyone who's going to say what Jesus said. John 14, 6. The Lord Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's the scandal of the gospel. It's not what we've conjured up on our own. It is what Christ has said about himself. Come and trust in the one who calls you to a life Eternal that is only found in him. Second Corinthians eight and nine. For, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The glory of the incarnation for you is to know that God has given grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Paul is telling us that there, where we see poverty, where we see poverty in the incarnation is not at the stable in Bethlehem. Where we see poverty in the incarnation is at the cross of Calvary. For it is at the cross of Calvary that the Lord Jesus Christ became the poorest of poor. It was on the cross that he became forsaken and abandoned. It was on the cross that he was stripped of everyone and everything. And only had darkness as his companion. It was on that cross that we see the poverty of the total forsakenness that Paul spoke of. That for your sakes he became poor. What is man that you are mindful of him? Of the son of man that you care for him. 
Why such love for me? <laughs> that will be what the people of God in all of the ages cry out for eternity. Why me? Why me? If you can even fathom the, the sight of angels surrounding the throne or the four beasts around the throne of God and you are there among them worshiping, you may and you will say, why me? You will have knowledge of those who rejected those who you grew up with and you will say, why me? Why me? And the answer will be because it pleased God. God to choose a people by his own praise and glory. The cross is not only the greatest demonstration of God's love. It is also the greatest demonstration of God's wrath. And by becoming among us and for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, he took that fateful step. That would lead him ultimately to the cross. Do you know that? That the coming into the into this world in the in the form and in the likeness of men, being a true man, that that was the first step to the cross. That would save a sin sick world from their sins, and the Word became flesh. He never forgets that we are dust, because He is as we are. That is why, even in our sin and in our shame, we should never cease to come to Him. Broken, bruised, yes, come to him. Broken hearted, though we may be our failure, we must always bring to him because he is the only one who can cleanse us of our sins. What does this mean for us on this day? What is all that we've said in the past 45 minutes? What does all of that conclude to It concludes simply to this. Bow your knee. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ because there is no other way to be saved. And behold, you are standing on holy ground. Let us stand.